morning, everyone. So my name's Jess, and this morning I have the privilege of reading God's Word. So the first Bible reading is from Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 18. There's a few curly names here, so I'll do my best. So starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanour or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names of your own law, settle the matter yourself. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and they beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed from Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. Second Bible, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Do have your Bible open as well. We'll, we'll uh, walk through our passage today. We're back in the book of Acts. Um, a question for you. If you are someone who is a Christian in this room today, in your decision-making framework in life, 
do you consider and factor into your decisions gospel opportunities? When you make a decision about work or home, the kids, where you spend your money, what you do with your time, your house, your holiday, your investments, do you think about how you can invest into people's lives with the truth of Jesus? And then, do you spend resources towards that end as well? So today, come and see with me what that looks like for Paul in Corinth as he's guided by gospel opportunities, navigating all the challenges along the way, being encouraged by God and godly friends as he figures out how to bring the gospel to the people of Corinth. And maybe, in your situation today, you would be reminded and encouraged as God encourages Paul in verse 10, chapter 18, I have many people in this city that you'll be encouraged to know that there are many people in your sphere of influence that do belong to Jesus as well. Because I reckon, in front of each of us, there are more gospel opportunities than we first think and even imagine even if our life isn't going the way that we have planned. So, as we begin, keep that in mind, but let's just take a step back first and just go back to what Acts is all about because it has been a while. It's been a year or so since we've been in this book. So let me give you the story so far uh, as we think about the book of Acts. In Luke, not Acts, but in Luke chapter 1, we're given uh, why the purpose as to why Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts as well. And in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says these words, I too decided to write for you, Theophilus, an orderly account so that you would know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So in writing Luke and in writing Acts, the purpose is assurance and certainty. And Luke wants to give that through a written narrative. You and me... And Theophilus would know that God's plan centers on Jesus, his community, that in the bumpy starts to this community, in all the persecution and disagreement and challenges and working out what it means to live as God's people, the mission of the risen King Jesus cannot be stopped. Because God is in control, spreading the good news of his kingdom outwardly through his people into the world, beginning in Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth. Which means, not only do we have assurance and certainty, but we have the confidence that the gospel is up to the task. In, Ch- in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke writes these words from Jesus, saying, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. And then Acts, as a narrative, tracks this progress, giving us confidence along the way that the gospel is powerful and effective in every situation. You see it begin in the holy city, Jerusalem, and disciples are made and believers uh, trust in Jesus. Then you see it in the city of philosophers, Athens. You see the gospel at work in the city of trade and military, Thessalonica. You see the gospel in the city of retirement and prosperity, Philippi. You see the gospel is powerful in the city of magic, Ephesus. And you see the gospel is effective in the empire itself, Rome. And today, we see the gospel is effective in a city of sex and sport, Corinth. 
all different soils, yet the same gospel is powerful and effective in every situation. And so in Acts chapter 18, verse 1, Paul leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. What do uh, Las Vegas, King's Cross, and Hindley Street all have in common? By the look on your face, there's a reputation about those places, isn't there? Yeah, you know what I mean. There's a reputation, isn't there? Now, if you lived in AD 51-ish when this is written, you would add to that list, well, maybe start that list with Corinth. Maybe Hindley Street is more like Corinth than Corinth like Hindley Street, but you know. Um, in fact, the city's reputation was such that a phrase was coined in the first century, and if you said to someone, I'm going to behave like a Corinthian, it meant you're going to go out for the night with lots of sex and shenanigans and partying. Being a Corinthian was synonymous with that sort of behavior, similar to saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's the same idea. It was a place that was also famous for sports stars and sporting events. The Istami Games, an ancient, uh, like the Olympics, but a bit smaller, happened every two years. Think Commonwealth Games-ish, that sort of thing, um, before the Commonwealth. It happened in Corinth. And Aphrodite, the Greek god of love, had a big temple on the hill. And at any given time of any day of any week of the whole year, over a thousand prostitutes were in the temple wandering the streets in the name of Aphrodite. You can imagine the sort of place it is. Sports stars, traders, lust, Greek gods, sex, everything you can imagine. Every possible desire to be satisfied at Corinth. And then Paul comes into this space with the gospel. How's it going to go? It doesn't take much of the imagination to imagine you may know people in a similar uh, style of existence in life. And maybe you think, well, the gospel is not up for the task for them. But interesting, Paul's strategy, and we read it in 1 Corinthians 2, it says in verse 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I came, I resolved, when I came to Corinth, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's strategy in a really hard place was to be really sharp on one thing. What was that? Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what we see. For all the other stuff going on, the crux of the matter, the sharp bit Paul knew he needed to get across to people was Jesus Christ and him crucified. So let's look at that. The section is broken up into two parts, 1 to 11 in Acts chapter 18, and then 12 to 18. And they're united by there's conflict, there's God encouraging uh, Paul, giving him gospel opportunity. And then it's united by the length of stay as well. You notice a few times it says Paul stayed and Paul stayed. So let's look at it and see how Paul navigates the gospel opportunity. So he begins uh, on the weekend. He goes to the synagogue in Corinth and he's listening and he's engaging with people about Jesus. In verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul is connecting Jesus from the historical roots in the Jewish scriptures to their everyday life, proving, saying, Jesus is the one you've been waiting for. Interesting, it works today too. Jesus is the one you've been longing for and waiting for as well. That same idea. But then during the week, he works as a tent maker, as Amanda wonderfully pointed out with a bluey reference. In verse 2 and 3, he meets a Jew named Aquila and Priscilla, uh, sorry, um, Jew, two Jews named Priscilla and Aquila. 
and their tent maker. So Paul stays with them. He searches them out and stays with them and works with them. He's on his own at this point, traveling from Athens. He's faced persecution for his faith along the way. So when it says in Corinthians, he came in weakness and fear and trembling, he was really discouraged, beaten up. He wasn't feeling too confident. And you meet some other Christians who have also faced persecution. They got expelled from Rome because of Claudius. And he decides to stay with them and work as a tent maker. Hey, isn't there something wonderfully encouraging when you meet another Christian? Isn't the Christian relationships a beautiful thing to find in the world when you get bruised and battered? I was talking to someone this week and they said, one of the new hires at work is a Christian. And how encouraged they were. There was someone else who knew Jesus. They could talk with about work and pray and just be encouraged in a workspace. There was another Christian. Hey, this is Paul and Priscilla and Aquila. The beauty of gospel friendships is a wonderful thing. As parents, when we, when we get to know other kids and their parents as well, often we'll say, oh, I reckon this family goes to church somewhere. And a few times we've been right. And it's encouraging. Oh, you love Jesus too. Oh, we do. This is Paul in this city, beaten up. It's a hard life. And he reckons too that the best thing at this moment in this city for the sake of the gospel is to work with his hands. So he, he defaults to his trade as a tent maker. Every Jewish boy that grew up learnt the Torah, but rabbis encouraged them to get a trade as well. So you work with your mind in the scriptures, work with your hands, tent making or whatever it was like that. And rabbis encouraged it. And in Acts, we see Paul doing this occasionally, supporting himself, supporting others by making tents. Now he does that strategically to show he's not about getting their money for talking about Jesus. He doesn't want any idea that I'll talk about Jesus, you give me money. I'll support myself and talk about Jesus. That was his plan. However, once his two other friends, Timothy and Silas, arrive, they bring enough resources with them that Paul downs tools. In verse 5, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. He's freed up to have more time on gospel content. Less time making tents so that more people can have a flourishing life under God, not just into retirement, but for all eternity, right? There are opportunities, no matter what Paul is doing, he's simply asking what's best for the gospel at this time and then responds. But when you start to adopt that outlook in life, what's best for the gospel? Instead of what should I do, what's best for the gospel? You discover hostility isn't too far away. In verse 6, but when they opposed Paul and became abusive. The opposition here, there's two, oppos two moments of, of persecution. One is an opposition to Paul. Uh, it literally means it's an idiom for having a sour face towards someone. They opposed him. Ugh! You know, that's what they thought of Paul. But then they were abusive, which is where we get our word blaspheme from. They were rejecting Paul and the God he was talking, and his God whom he was talking about from the scriptures. And then Paul says, uh, your blood be on your own heads, I'm innocent. From now on I'll go to the Gentiles. You know, Christianity isn't a choose-your-own-adventure sort of faith. You know, pick the bit you like, adopt this bit, don't worry about that bit because, you know, it's not trendy anymore. I'll just take the little bits of Christianity that fit with me, please. That's not Christianity. The gospel is bringing your life under the revealed will and purpose of God in Jesus. 
and to turn away from that God is no small thing. Uh, it's to turn away from the very life in, for the Jews here that God had been promising his people for centuries. They're turning away and rejecting the next part of the revelation of God to them, which is Jesus. And that will not end well. But Paul knows at this moment, with the abuse and the hostility, there's no more gospel opportunities in the synagogue. So Paul widens his net. Just because a few Jews reject the Messiah doesn't mean the word of God has failed. The Old Testament looked forward to a day and a time when the people of God would not be restricted to a nation, one nation of people, but in fact the nations coming to worship God. God is an inclusive global God in that sense. And notice too the spatial emphasis here. How gospel opportunities not only take you far away sometimes, but can be a complex web of very closely related events and situations and places. And you may not have to go very far to find them because there's more opportunities close at home than I think you imagine. Paul moves a short distance from the synagogue, ends up staying a long time and sees heaps of gospel fruit. Look at verse 7. Paul left the synagogue and then went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. And then the fruit, look at the fruit. The synagogue leader, Crispus, and his entire household believe in the Lord and many of the Corinthians too. You see, the, the, the hard soil at Corinth, the same soil at Corinth, I mean, produces a different result just around the corner. But it does wear you down. If you've ever been at work or at a party or just generally doing life and someone finds out you're a Christian and your faith and your person get attacked or brushed aside, it is discouraging. And for Paul the Jew, his own people group have rejected him and the God whom he loves to bits and he dearly loves them. And so look at what God does, because Paul is feeling very discouraged. There are great winds, but there's also heaps of discouragement. And then in verse 9, one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will, is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Do you know good rich, strong coffee and theology keep you going on mission in life and as a Christian. Three things God encourages him here in this moment. Take comfort in God's sovereignty. I am with you. Don't be afraid. I'll protect you. God is sovereign. Know, number two, know that God's word is well up to the task. I am with you. Don't be afraid. To st- no. God's word is well up to the task. So don't retreat. Don't stop speaking. And secondly, there's a promise that evangelism will work. Not because of Paul's ability, he came to them with fear and trembling, but because God's election of people is sure. I want you to stay. Why? Because I have many people in this city. Many more will become believers. And at that moment, every anxiety that Paul had is dealt with. And that's what good theology does. It meets you in the trenches of life, with a vision of God's world, enabling you to do hard things and keep going with the right perspective. 
and a solid view of God keeps you going and encourages you in this way, and that solid, robust view of God comes from God's Word, just as God's Word creates in Genesis and gives life, just as the Word, of, uh, the word Himself comes in Jesus, in the Gospels, in Acts, this same Word is used to establish and grow and encourage his community. Acts shows us again and again how the Son of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God and the Word of God all work together to achieve God's purpose. And strengthened by that, in verse 18, Paul stays the longest he's ever been in one place at this time and he leaves on his terms not because he gets kicked out or chased out, which is very unique for Paul in his life. It's incredible. Now, I know um, that many of you here in this room are facing uncertainty in your current season of life, challenges as things are happening in your world which are very unknown, decisions to make, and you might be at the mercy of others on those decisions as well. And many of you are asking and have asked, where does God want me to be? So my question is, I want to pause and just say, is this moment that Paul had a blueprint for your life? Because it can be tempting to, to read this and think, where's my vision from the Lord? I would love to go to sleep tonight, to have a vision of absolute clarity, to wake up confident to just get on with my life. Is it a blueprint or is it something else? I want to encourage you in that thought. Just consider, again, the context of Acts. God is moving outwards to more and more people. He's doing it through Peter in the first half, now Paul. Peter and Paul are apostles, which means they're messengers of God laying a foundation and others will build upon their foundation in terms of they'll carry on the gospel from one person to another and teach and build on it. What's more, there's a uniqueness to Paul in the narrative that Acts is telling us as well. We see that each time God goes to a new people group and the gospel comes to the first time, there's a consistency with what God has done in the past to show how the gospel is uniting all people, giving all people the same spirit in the same way through faith and repentance in Jesus, often accompanied by similar signs and events. The point is that the, the Gentiles or the the Jews far out in another group or anywhere, you can never say, I have less God because I'm not in Jerusalem, right? Acts is saying that's not true. You have the, it's the same God, the same Spirit, in the same way through faith and repentance. As Paul Harrington reminded us for three weeks, if you're a believer, you have the Spirit, you're full of the Spirit, that's great. And we see how, God, how the people of God use wisdom and prayer and the leading of God's Spirit to make decisions. Which means, if... We think of this vision moment as a blueprint. You have to genuinely ask yourself what you do with other parts of Acts as well. Like in Acts 16, when the Holy Spirit stops Paul going to Asia. Or in 17, when the believers send Paul away after three weeks of being there. Or in Acts 19, when Paul encounters the same opposition as he does here, but he gets no vision and stays for three years, not just a year and a half. Or in 21, it gets even more tricky. The believers, under the inspiration of the Spirit, say to Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul says, I'm going to go anyway. Which one do you follow? Or perhaps, it's not a blueprint. 
Perhaps this is the reminder that gospel opportunities need to be factored into decision-making. That God sustains his people through his word and that Paul is an example of wisdom, conviction from God's word to navigate life. And it's this divine assurance that grounds him. The support from others with Priscilla, Timothy, Silas, Aquila, they're supporting him. He said, there's wisdom in surrounding yourself with godly friends, good theology from God's word. There's wisdom in looking for gospel opportunities. And there's assurance that in every city, God has many people that belong to him. And that no matter what place you're in, the gospel is well up to the task. Which means I reckon the far more pointy question isn't the vision thing. It's the reminder that Christianity is not dead in a place like Corinth. Christianity is not dead in your sphere of life. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful and he wasn't just talking about one pocket and one time. He has many people in this city. Therefore, rather than asking, stay or go, are you asking, considering, what's the opportunity? Because I think there's more than you can imagine. If we pick the latest census data, for example, only 43.9% of Aussies identify as Christians now. Which means the chances of a friend of yours being invited to church or hearing about the kindness of Jesus and the offer to come under his loving rule and care is going to come from less than half the people they know. Carola shared last week that her friend at work, there's only one Christian that known in her friend's circle and that's her. But encouragingly, 50% of people are open to a spiritual conversation. Which means tomorrow morning when someone says to you, oh, what would you do on the weekend? The response... I went to church, is more likely to have a gospel opportunity than you probably think. Now, you may not be able to preach for 20 minutes to them, nor should you, but next week, the same thing, and the week after, the same thing. It's the reminder in Acts 18 that Christians have another agenda to follow, guided by gospel opportunities assured of God's character and the truth of the gospel because that gets you through every challenge because in 12 to 18, a year and a half later, Paul faces another one. Some Jews mount a legal challenge against Paul. They bring him before Gallio, the local magistrate. But Gallio perceives this dispute involves a different understanding of scripture and he doesn't want to be bothered with it. Like, come on, guys, you're just arguing over words and names. I don't actually care. I refuse to rule over your silly argument. So he drives them away. And now the, the Jewish group that brought Paul to Gallia are not happy, so they beat Sosthenes up for this. It's a really strange turn of events. I read this morning, by the way, Sosthenes writes Corinthians with Paul. Very encouraging. But Luke records this strange turn of events to make the point, and we'll see it repeated over and over again now in Acts, that Christianity is not a threat to Rome or to anyone, but it is misunderstood. He shows us that Christians are able to live in two spaces very comfortably and confident. A Christian can be misunderstood and persecuted at the same time, all because of who our God is. And we live in that space confident and happy in the gospel that we believe. Yes, it wasn't fair he was beaten up, but it turns out Gallio's decision not to decide on this matter meant the gospel could go unhindered in Corinth for even longer. You see, from one angle, the way you look at things, 
can look terribly unfair and bleak. But from another, there are also opportunities arising you never imagined. You see, God wanted Paul to stay in Corinth. He used a vision. He used Gallio's indecision. And then grounded in God's character and certainty of the gospel, surrounded by godly people, Paul had sensitive eyes and ears to what was happening, to wonder, what's God up to in this? You notice Paul didn't get upset when Gallio cut him off and said, you can't talk? See, this is what's remarkable about Christianity. You have an entirely new way of processing thinking and making decisions and responding to events of understanding what's happening around you and in the world as you consider God's agenda, how you can be a part of it. Friends, I know many of you here today, sorry, many of you here today have had things happen to you in your life to bring you to a point this morning at 10.48 a.m. on Sunday where you've had the chance to hear about faith in Jesus. And you're sitting in this room and it's no coincidence that you are here. My question to you is, what if God has been leading you to become one of his people in his city of Adelaide today? What if today would be the first time that you recognized this? and responded in faith and repentance to the God who has been leading you so wonderfully and kindly so that you would know him as Lord and Saviour and recognise his kindness in Jesus. And friends, I also know that many of you right now, your life here today looks very different than what you imagined. And as you get older, you reflect on what's happened and you only notice the discrepancies even more. And so therefore, can I encourage you though, to add to your decision-making tool belt in life a unique question, to pull it out and say, what are the gospel opportunities God has given me here and now? So that you too can speak about God. And remember, you're surrounded by godly people here, gospel friends, who actually want to cheer each other on in this. So I want to encourage you, stick in your tool belt, and then over coffee, share with someone a gospel opportunity you've had in the past. I want to tell you a story about um, another person I spoke to this week, actually, and he's looking for work, and he's applied for lots of jobs, and he's had some interviews, and um, he's waiting to hear back, so using wisdom and proactive, and that's great. And he said to me as we were talking, you know, I just I want to be in the right spot where God wants me. But then he added because I just want the right gospel opportunities in whatever work I do. See, this was a man who has skills and talent and is applying for jobs in his field and looking everywhere for work, but his key question isn't, what's the best job for my retirement? It was, what's the best way that I can have gospel opportunities? And ironically, the same man, a few months back, he was very keen to take gospel opportunities and was talking about Jesus in his workplace. Not in, a, uh, not in a, a harsh way, but people knew he was a Christian. And because they knew he was a Christian, certain opportunities were no longer offered to him and he had to leave his workplace. And so now this particular man is looking for other work, still convicted by the gospel and wants to take those opportunities. And it's very much like Paul. And this man I'm talking of has had no vision <laughs> either. Just a conviction that Jesus is actually really wonderful and he just wants to take every opportunity under God to be faithful. 
So be encouraged by Acts 18, that in weakness and fear and much trembling, God might use you in the tough soil of your workplace and life for his glory. Let me pray. Our great God, we are reminded that the harvest is plentiful, the soil might be tough, but the gospel is so up to the challenge and ready and willing and able to penetrate any heart, any hardness. Father, give us eyes to see those opportunities. Give us boldness to kindly and winsomely declare that there is life and forgiveness and grace and truth in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. May you affirm to us our commitment to him that many of us have made for so many years today, Jesus. But we thank you that you're with us. Amen.